Hey, video game fans, I'm Ben Bertoli. And I'm Push Dustin. And this is Memory Card Season 2. We're back, baby! If you're new to the show, it's quite a simple setup. Each episode, one of us, or both of us, or a guest, takes on the role of the expert, illuminating a weird or wonderful piece of gaming history for all to enjoy. If you haven't listened to Season 1 yet, don't worry, you won't be lost in the slightest. But you really should listen to Season 1. I might be a little bit biased, but I think it's pretty great. So what's new for Season 2, you might be asking? Well, for starters, we now have a dedicated Twitter account, at MemCardShow. So go ahead and follow us. We've also got our own website, MemoryCardShow.com. Go ahead and check it out. We're also, also, going to be launching a companion YouTube series based on prior episodes. And last, and certainly not least, we started a Patreon for support from attractive and smart listeners such as yourself. But more on that later. Yeah, can we actually get started here? I have things to do. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Let's boot up Season 2, Episode 1. For the first episode of season two, we're going to start with something that sounds like it's sort of a fairy tale. It starts far out in the middle of the British countryside in the tiny village of Twycross. Ooh. It's about 100 miles northwest of London and I think uh, 15 miles west of Ly- Leicester? Leicester? I don't know how to pronounce British <laughs> things or Japanese things. So, um, but it's less than a thousand official inhabitants. It's basically just known for its zoo. That's its main attraction. And the Twycross Zoo isn't even actually technically in the village of Twycross. It's kind of like up, up the road. Uh. But it is known for its, like, it has like the most primates of any zoo in the entire world. Really? The entire world? Wow. Yeah, I, b- I believe so. I believe it does have the most primates, like monkeys, apes, that kind of thing. So they went bananas for monkeys. They did, absolutely. <laughs> Lots of monkey business going on there in, in Twycross. Yeah. Which will tie into something else a little later, as you'll see. But aside from the zoo, there's really not much else there. It's very, like, scenic, nice little town. I guess they have the oldest stained glass in all of England, which is something. Okay. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Twycross is also the unlikely birthplace to a host of strange creatures and iconic characters. This includes a trio of intergalactic amphibians, a heroic secret agent from the future, and a community of sentient piñatas. Oh, those are like my favorite things. <laughs> yeah. All of Push's favorite things in one place. Sentient piñatas <laughs> yeah. and the oldest stained glass in the <laughs> country. <laughs> I had it both. <laughs> <laughs> no, but all of those things, except for the stained glass, are uh, the critically acclaimed creations of the gaming studio known as Rare. Woo. And obviously, a game studio out in the middle of the country, especially in England, doesn't seem like it should be able to be super successful. But for the 80s, 90s, and the early 1000s, you know, Rare was known for churning out hit games for the Nintendo consoles, and it, it basically just kept growing and growing. I mean, Rare wasn't even originally called Rare, and the games that it produced were not for Nintendo. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk a little bit about the history of Rare before it became the big name that it is today. You could say that this is a rare look. Yes, it's a rare beginning. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> so before we get into Rare's history, is there a retro Rare game that, that you're particularly fond of, Push? Perhaps my uh, most favorite Rare game is Donkey Kong 64, which is kind of changed because they have like Easter eggs of their earlier games in it. A lot of people hate on Donkey Kong 64 because they say it's got too much to collect, but I say the more the merrier. That's just like perfect when you're a kid, when you don't have um, a job or friends or anything like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, or pets or, or siblings. Any, any responsibilities. <laughs> you can just sit there and collect bananas. <laughs> exactly. Go around as Lanky Kong, slapping your behind and collecting blueprints. Oh, yeah, the blueprints. So the official history of Rare starts with Chris Stamper, who as a kid was basically like enamored with electronics and he was always taking things apart. By the time he got to college, he decided to go to the Lowenborough University of Technology. And at that point, he started building his own computers, usually powered by an 8-bit processor, which, you know, back in the day was pretty fancy schmancy. Yeah, top of the line. Uh, after two years of university, he decided that he was going to drop out and just kind of do his programming full time. He would debug game software and he would convert unpopular and outdated arcade units into like more profitable things. Mm -hmm. But basically, he got into the video game industry, you know, as this, these low level jobs. But he was super ambitious and thought that it was an industry that was going to balloon into something huge. And of course, he was right. Mm -hmm. To do this, to like make his dreams come true, he decided to enlist the help of his younger brother named Tim, um, who was more had more of an artistic eye, and he was going to focus on the front end of the games while Chris focused on the back end of the games. Get both ends. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And thus, the Stamper Brothers were born. Now these are the Stamper Brothers, and I will probably just refer to them as the Stamper Brothers from now on because it's, it's easier. Stamper Bros. Just like the Smash Bros, but smarter, I guess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> more talented. <laughs> so those two stuck together, I mean, for the vast majority of their gaming careers. But uh, initially, they got jobs at some companies. Um, one was called Associated Leisure. And then there's one called Zillic Electronics. And both of these jobs gave them the opportunity to take trips to Japan, Ooh. which everyone should do at some point in their life. Yeah. I mean, push, you went there and they wouldn't let you leave. So, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they were like, please never leave us. Please. Yeah, we need you here yeah. for translating yeah. things. <laughs> push, push, sensei. Uh-huh. <laughs> so they <sighs> went to Japan. They went to Japan and they saw basically this market that they had not experienced in the UK. Mm. Greater variety. The user base was like huge for, you know, all of these games that they saw that were so popular. And um, in 1982, the Stampers decided it was time to start the gaming company of their own. And they settled on the name Ashby Computer and Graphics. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we're not quite to the rare, the rare part of this yet. It's quite a fantastic name. Yeah. Well, they set up in the town of Ashby de la Zouch, which is a great name. Zouch? That's a British town? Yes. They set up their computer and graphics company right next door to the store that their parents owned. Oh. So they were not far from their family. And they pretty much just started out by making games for the Sinclair ZX Spectrum and the Commodore 64. So they were in that home computer market mm. that was like super popular in Britain at the time. Yeah. When I was looking into it, there was like 10 to 15 magazines that were just about home computers. In Japan, it's just it was, during that time, it was just all arcades. Right. They weren't really on that home computer scene. 
even though they the company was called Ashby Computer and Graphics, when they made games, they uh, went by Ultimate Play the Game, which is a way cooler name, I think. And eventually they became like renowned far and wide for their quality programming, visuals, and gameplay. They just put extra little elbow grease into everything they did, and it ran a lot smoother. The games lasted a lot longer. Uh, people just kept coming back to them. And one of their first hits was the interstellar adventure called Jetpack, mm. which is a horizontal wraparound game for those who haven't played it, where you have to like assemble a dismantled rocket yep. while aliens try and hit you and you avoid them. And so, Push, what's the connection between Jetpack and Donkey Kong 64? Jetpack is one of the games that you can unlock in Donkey Kong 64 by collecting the rare medallions. Yeah, I think, uh, I think it was the banana medals or something like that. Oh, I thought there was like a separate medallion for rare. <laughs> I thought the rare tokens unlocked the Donkey Kong arcade cabinet. Ah, you might be, you're probably right. Yeah, but I think the uh, banana medals were something you gave to Cranky Kong, who was like a doctor or a professor or something in that game, and he would let you play Jetpack. Yeah, and in order to get the rare rare coin, you would need to clear Jetpack. Oh, that was it. Right, so you had to clear Jetpack to get the coin, and you use the coin to play Donkey Kong, the original Donkey Kong. Yeah. So Jetpack comes out. It's a huge hit on these home computers. You know, it's got that replayability. Unlike most game studios, Ultimate Play the Game hardly ever advertised their games or provided interviews to game enthusiast publications. Mm. The Stampers felt that the quality of their games and, like, positive word of mouth from their fans... Like, spoke for itself. Yeah, exactly. So time wasted on advertising and, like, entertaining journalists was time that they could be spending making games. And they were, like, super... They were super dedicated to making games. Like, a little bit too much, probably. Yeah. They, they did give one interview where Tim Stamper revealed that he and Chris had only taken off two Christmas mornings since they had started full-time work with Ultimate about five years prior. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> like, every single day. Here's an actual quote from Tim Stamper. It says, We worked seven days a week, 8 a.m. till 1 or 2 in the morning. I don't feel it's any good having engineers who only work 9 to 5 because then you get a 9 to 5 game. So apparently <laughs> crunch culture was, like, invented by these guys. Yeah, that's, I don't know. That just seems wrong. <laughs> right, yeah. It seems, uh, like, a little uh, bit... Excessive. Yeah. And ironically, most, if not all, of the ultimate play-the-game games did not include credits or information on, like, who had programmed or designed anything. Oh. Yeah. It was just, like, Ultimate was, like, a team, and every game was a team effort. And so it was like, yeah, that was Ultimate Play the Game who made that, but we don't know <laughs> who did what, really. Were they afraid of, like, poaching? I don't know. I really, I'm not sure why it was like that. Because, like, during that era, there's a lot of games that were, like, people used their aliases and stuff like that. Mm. Because they were afraid of, companies were afraid of them getting poached. Like, oh, this game's so great, and it was programmed by Dan Smith. We're going to get him. Yeah, we're going to get Dan but, Smith for um, our, our next game and offer him a higher salary. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but other gaming studios really did not like them, like, at all, because they felt like they were working too hard, and the whole, like, reclusive nature was off-putting, because it was like, why don't you want to do advertising? Why don't you want to do interviews? What's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But the Stampers were super big into pleasing their fans. I've read multiple accounts where people just wrote in to say like, hey, I bought your game and I played it and I loved it. And they would send them back like sweatshirts and hats and posters, like mm. all free of charge, just because they felt that 
the fans loved them and they wanted to keep the fans happy. Oh, well. Heyo, folks. We're putting this episode on pause for a moment to reveal how you can help Memory Card. If you're enjoying the show and you'd like to support our gaming history endeavors, you should consider pledging a dollar or two to our Patreon. For a single dollar a month, you'll receive special updates and be given the option of ad-free episodes. You won't have to hear this ad, the one that you're currently listening to, ever again. For $2 a month, you'll become an official member of Club 251, which gives listeners access to exclusive bonus content and detailed transcripts via our memory card website. Every little bit pledged helps us improve the show and grow memory card into something even more wonderful. Find out more on the support section of our website or at patreon.com backslash memcard. That's patreon.com backslash M-E-M-C-A-R-D. Now, back to the show. So, as far as Ultimate Play the Game games, beyond Jetpack, uh, they did have a lot of different hits, but the most well-known series that they had was called Saberman. It was an adventure series, and Ultimate Play the Game had pioneered their own isometric graphics engine that was dubbed Filmation, because it kind of looked like it was like, real-life film. It didn't, but at the time. Yeah, it was pretty advanced. Yeah, exactly. It, it gave the games this three-dimensional appearance and like this feeling of depth that most players had never experienced. You know, it was very much like a 2D side-scrolling world, and they had introduced this, uh, this new engine that gave them that three-dimensional edge. So there were quite a few uh, Saberman titles, and the most famous one is called Night Lore, like K-N-I-G-H-T, like you're a knight. Yeah. That came out in 1984, and a lot of people feel that it's like one of the most influential games uh, to come out of Britain, like in that time. It's a big deal. But the Stampers are like, we're over it. It's time to move on. And a year before Night Lore came out, um, on one of their trips to Japan, the brothers discovered the newly launched Nintendo Famicom gaming system, mm. which wasn't really like a big overnight success in Japan. But the Stampers knew that it had this technological potential that was going to like house this whole new generation of gaming classics. Like, you know, you could swap these carts in and out, and they just kind of knew that it was a big deal. Without wasting any time, they went to Nintendo and they asked, like, you know, we, we make games. We are programmers. <laughs> We, we, we are programmers. <laughs> <laughs> we are programmers. Let us in. But Nintendo was just like, no, no, we don't really work with anybody outside of Japan. This was all third party developers at this time were all within Japan. So they were just like, nope, sorry. Yeah. They're very much like a closed book, which was kind of like ultimate play the game. You know what I mean? Mm. Very secluded. Not that Nintendo didn't do advertising, but it was kind of that same you know, mindset. So they refused to share any of their programming codes for the Famicom with anyone outside of their already established group of third-party developers. So they were like, sorry about you. Have a, have a, have a nice trip back home. Hope you enjoy Japan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the Stampers basically like loaded up their luggage with like a few Famicoms and like every single game that had come out, you know, at launch uh, that was available at the time. And when they got back to the UK, they began turning the console inside out. And after eight months of reverse engineering, every chip and circuit board inside the Famicom, they were like optimistic that they could develop an actual game for the system. And they didn't want to like go back to Nintendo and be like, we know all your secrets. And, you know, like <laughs> now you have to let us in the club. They were like, we got to do something to like wow them. We got to dazzle them. Mm -hmm. uh, so they began working on a game demo. And months later, they went back to Japan. 
they brought their prototype for this demo and they met with the high level Nintendo executives, um, including the Nintendo of America founder, Minoru Arakawa. Is that, am I anywhere close on that? Arakawa. Arakawa. So they met with all these Nintendo bigwigs at the Kyoto headquarters, and but this time they had the ace up their sleeve. And that ace was an actual game that would eventually come out for the, the Famicom and the NES. Do you want to guess what it was? Um, actually, I can't think of a rare game made on the NES. It's a very simple sports-related game. Simple sports game, and it's from the UK. Like, is it soccer? No, but it starts with an S. It's a slalom. Oh. Yeah, so it's a, it's a skiing game. You basically, like, maneuver down this perilous mountainside scheme between flags. Because that's how slalom works. Yeah. And uh, they presented this demo, and it, like, sounded like an NES game. It controlled like an NES game. And they were just, like, astounded. Like, Nintendo could not believe it. They were like, how did you manage this? <laughs> who told you our secrets? <laughs> yeah. They started killing people who were like, where's the traitor? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you say that like it's a joke, but uh, apparently... Uh, Nintendo had gone on record multiple times saying that reverse engineering the Famicom was impossible. So not only were they like, okay, you're in, you're going to be our very first third-party developer outside of Japan, they were also like, we want Slalom now. We're going <laughs> to put it in arcades, and we're also going to make it into an, a Famicom game. And also, because they weren't in Japan, they talked Nintendo into basically the fact that they were licensing games from um, ultimate play the game and not actually producing them which meant that they didn't they weren't affected by nintendo's weirdly strict like regulations about how many games could be created in a normal calendar year oh uh, yeah it's like five or two it was, it, was, it was very low yeah it was low it was somewhere between yeah like two to five games a year like you couldn't go over that but they found this loophole they're like oh we're not actually producing them we're just gonna make them and then we'll license them to you Mm-hmm. And little to anyone's knowledge, um, the Stampers had actually conceived Slalom, the, the demo that they made, under a different company. They had made this company on the side that was called <gasps> Rare <gasps> Designs on the Future. <gasps> Before Rare was just Rare, it was called Rare Designs on the Future. Eventually they left. They got rid of that. It's not the 80s anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, they had all these... They had all these crazy fans for Ultimate Play the Game, and they were shocked when all of a sudden the Stampers sold the Ultimate Play the Game name and like their entire gaming catalog to um, this competitor that was called U.S. Gold, mm-hmm. United States Gold, which was also based in England. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very strange. But basically all the fans were like, oh, the Stampers are taking a break. Like They're on like a sabbatical. Mm-hmm. We're just going to let them rest. They'll come back with something good. But in reality... They were basically setting up this entirely new studio. What's the point of setting up a new studio? I don't know. I I guess they just like to start fresh. Okay. So they moved their base of operations from um, Ashby de la Zouch to Twycross, which I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Mm -hmm. And they bought basically a mansion, a Queen Anne period mansion that was on this uh, farmland. And there was all these buildings that were like falling apart. It, it was like an actual like manor, Mm-mm. an official British manor with barns and stables and things. It came with like a old head of the servants. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, yes, quite. What games will we will we be making today, Master Stamper? <laughs> exactly like that. No, but apparently there were like lots of free range chickens running around that were a problem. 
Oh. <laughs> which is just like hilarious to picture, like a stampede of chickens coming in to just <laughs> mess you up when you're trying to code a game. <laughs> Basically, they would just be fixing up this farmhouse year by year for the next decade. Mm. Every time that they would get bigger, they would say like, oh, well, it turns out the horse stables need to be made into an office. and the... <laughs> Someone needs to catch those chickens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I'm sure, I'm sure they just put the chickens to work. Yeah. So over the next few years, Rare would produce dozens of games for the Famicom as well as its Western iteration, which was the Nintendo Entertainment System, as most people know it, or the NES. They also began working on Game Boy games as the Game Boy became popular, and they uh, even worked on some commercial franchises like Spider-Man and uh, the World Wrestling Federation. Oh. Rare's biggest home console hit was... Donkey Kong Country. Okay, well, okay, before that... <laughs> this was on the nes it was on the super nes it was also on the genesis killer instinct no good guess though. It was battle toads ah yeah battle toads yeah yeah so this is like their toughest nails side scrolling beat em up that was released uh, originally for the nes in 1991 i guess and i never really thought about this as a kid but it was basically just based on the popularity of the teenage mutant ninja turtles mm. and I never really thought about that, but it kind of makes sense. <laughs> They're like, yeah. yeah, we'll get some frogs in there. Kicking butt. With Rare being a third-party developer, they had no issue saying, like, oh, this Battletoads is great. It's good on Nintendo, so we're just going to port it over to the Sega Master System, uh, which was the Sega Genesis elsewhere outside of Japan. So they're kind of like playing both sides at this point. And Nintendo's not the happiest with them because of that. They're kind of irked that Rare is working with Sega. Mm. But little did they know that Rare was working on something for Nintendo that was going to, like, blow them away. And this is kind of what leads to Donkey Kong Country. Rare purchased some workstations, computer workstations, that were manufactured by Silicon Graphics. And each workstation cost roughly $116,000 each. And that was in the early 90s money. So today it would be, like, astronomical. It was basically like a huge gamble. Yeah. If you were going to use these, they were either going to like put you in the spotlight or you were going to go bankrupt overnight. They basically just bought one so they could mess around with it to see if it was worth it. They worked on this tech demo because they wanted to impress Nintendo and basically get them on board to make them not a first party developer. Obviously, they didn't want Nintendo to buy them, but they wanted to be partnered. Yeah, they wanted to become partners with Nintendo. So in 1993, early 1993, a small group of Nintendo's top businessmen and developers were invited to the updated mansion in Twycross for a surprise unveiling. Uh -huh. The Stampers this time had made a demo that was of a boxing game that I don't think has ever been released or seen outside of this one meeting. It wasn't something that eventually became something else. Mm. And so with the Silicon Graphic workstations, they had managed to get the Super Nintendo's system running this like pseudo 3D world that we eventually will see in Donkey Kong Country. Yeah. They would scale down and digitally attach these pictures to the top of normal 2D dimension environments. And it made like that 3D, you know, kind of like that shimmery, glossy look mm. that we all know today. And apparently the Nintendo executives were so stunned they thought that it was like a prank. <laughs> they were they were like looking underneath desks and stuff to see if there was some kind of like supercomputer that was like actually running it and not like a Super Nintendo. They were like, these graphics are so amazing. There's no way. <laughs> Rare got what they wanted. The Stampers were told that Nintendo wanted to purchase 49% of their company. 
which gave them enough revenue to purchase even more Silicon Graphic workstations, and it promoted them from a third-party developer to a second-party developer. Mm -hmm. And Nintendo was like, listen, we love this. You can have any franchise you want, like any Nintendo franchise you want. And after the Stamper Brothers thought about it, they were like, we want Donkey Kong, like one of Nintendo's oldest villains. Like, we're going to revamp him and make him into something awesome. Yeah. Donkey Kong Country went on to become one of the best-selling Super Nintendo games. At that time, Sega was kind of catching Nintendo in the console wars there in the mid-90s. And this was kind of a turning point for Nintendo making that comeback and saying, like, sorry, Sega, you're behind us now, and we're going to go on to win this console generation. Nintendo does? (laughs) Nintendo does what Nintendo does best. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. We'd like to give a special shout out to talented chiptune composer Jamatar, who has once again allowed us to use his track Midori as opening and closing music. You can find more of his bangin' beats by searching Jamatar, that's J-A-M-A-T-A-R, on Spotify or visiting Jamatar.com. If you have any feedback on the podcast or want to recommend a topic, feel free to reach out to us via Twitter, at MemCardShow, or on our website, MemoryCardShow.com. And if you'd like to follow Ben and I, we can be found at Super Nintendo and Push Dustin, respectively. Have you considered supporting Memory Card on Patreon? Because you should. Join the growing list of awesome people like Jackson Bertoli, Taylor Bias, Cody Sam, Michael Strickland, Tyler Davis, Harrison, and Courtney Cotton. All of our Patreon info can be found on the support section of our website or on patreon.com backslash memcard. We'll be back very soon with some more gaming history goodness, so be sure to subscribe. We'll see you soon.